Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. All of us are constantly trying to navigate our digital relationships, what they mean, how we interact with each other, the various platforms that we choose to use. But for parents, this is especially hard when trying to navigate the digital relationships between our kids and their devices and platforms. I first came across Dr. Tracy Dennis Tuari by watching a Diane Sawyer report, Letting Your Phone Get Between You and Your Child. The piece focused on screen time's effect on young children, which is still largely not understood. However, what is clear is distracted parents on their devices can create a negative impact. Tracy is quick to point out that her research is not aimed at shaming parents, just the opposite. Tracy advocates for parents having conversations with their kids about what they are getting out of their electronic usage and discussing opportunity cost. Adults and kids face a similar issue in that constantly disruptive social communications can damage long-term relationships. Putting constraints around our device usage and demonstrating healthy digital habits are two ways parents and kids can work together to become better digital citizens. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari. Okay, Tracy, I am so looking forward to this conversation today. Uh, we met a few weeks ago and had an initial conversation about what we're going to talk about, and <laughs> which was exciting. And now I'm kicking myself because I didn't record, hit the record uh, button yeah. on, on that one. But um, today we're going to focus, we could go many different ways with our conversation today, but today we're going to focus on how I initially met you, which was through or introduced to your work which was through um, a Diane Sawyer report on technology and kids. So before we get to that point, though, I'd like you to kind of step back and give us a little bit of background about who you are. And for me, I'm interested in how did you get into the field of psychology? Oh, boy. You really, you want the I'm going deep. Story, I'm going deep. <laughs> well, I have to start a little bit deep. For you then and I actually started out life as a classical musician I was an oboist of all things and I don't know if most people even know what an oboe is but it is a woodwind instrument. It, I was gonna say it's a wood instrument uh, yeah it looks a bit like a clarinet but it has a double reed it tunes the orchestra if you um you if you ever uh listen to orchestral music but but anyway I started life as a musician and artist and um, although I did choose the oboe because nobody wanted to play it, and I felt sorry for it when I was nine years old. <laughs> but, then, but I was building this uh, potential career as a musician, and I, uh, you know, I went to conservatory at the Eastman School of Music, and I was ready to go for it. And at the same time, I started um, volunteering in, uh, in a, a research center 
where they studied at-risk kids. And they studied things like what happens when a child's abused and how can children be resilient and what happens when, um, when uh, children have the experience of having a parent who's clinically depressed. And so I was just, I was volunteering at the center. It was called back then the Mount Hope Family, Family Center at the University of Rochester. And what happened changed the rest of my life because I, I sort of fell in love with these kids. I saw, uh, as I was sort of volunteering in a very basic way, I got to interact with the kids and do sociotherapy, which is to kind of play with them during, you know, during the day as they were taking part in some other therapeutic experiences as well as research. And I learned um, that these kids who'd been through a lot were incredibly resilient. They, you know, some of them had been severely abused, but I would see them and I knew a little bit about their history, but I would see them during the day and they would be these beautiful, bright, creative children. And I have to say, I fell in love with this idea that these children could still be, not just survive, but thrive and be resilient. And how does that happen? And how do we help kids do that? And that's really why I, very suddenly switched gears after my junior recital at conservatory and announced to everyone that I wanted to become a clinical psychologist. So that was the very first step. So let me ask you this question. How did mom and dad take that news? Oh, God bless them. I mean, I was always a bit of a, a strong headed, per, you know, strong willed person, you might say. Uh, and they always supported me. And I'm very grateful to my, my parents for that. Um, and uh, they said, well, maybe you can do music therapy like somehow all this music education has been so many handy but I think they saw how passionate I was and um and so so I I uh fast forward I don't want to bore people too much with this story but um I did uh, receive a PhD then in clinical psychology uh, I specialized in working with kids but really expanded that um I retrained in neuroscience and I've been for the past 20 years a professor of clinical psychology and neuroscience at the City University of New York. I also um, had some time at the NYU School of Medicine and continue to collaborate there. So I really built this life as a researcher. Um, but about a decade ago, I got very interested in the digital revolution, the digital, digital mobile revolution that was happening and how social media was starting to impact our lives, both for good and for bad. And so I started shifting my research uh, to really examining how we can use technology to help people, but also how we can understand when it might not be helping us. And so a lot of my research is in that area um, and, um, and particularly on uh, effects on anxiety and depression and other aspects of emotional health. I've written a book on anxiety uh, that is going to be coming out in May with Harper Wave, which is a division of HarperCollins. So, so I guess I'm a professor and a, I founded a company called Wise Therapeutics to promote digital therapeutics, gamified ways to access therapy. I guess I'm a tech entrepreneur and I'm also a writer. So I don't know, maybe, maybe that's a, a little too much there, but, but that's sort of the nutshell. But you forgot one of your biggest roles. Mom. Your, your mom. <laughs> that is my biggest role. It's the thing that keeps me most uh, on target, I, I should say. I'm, I'm very blessed to be a mom and a wife. Uh, my kids are a uh, 13 and 10, a son, Covey, and a daughter, Nandini. So they are, of course, they are my purpose. And so a lot of the work I do very much is inspired uh, by them and their, you know, their experiences. Well, that's, that's incredible. I'm, I'm glad we are all about stories on this, on this show. It's been an amazing first year journey with the show. Um, but I, the feedback that I've gotten, which has been 
so tremendous from, from our audience has been, we love the stories, Paul. Get people on that talk about their, their story, um, that can share their story through life transitions, um, because a lot of people find it very inspirational. So, and, and, I'm, and I know a, a large part of my audience are parents, and this is near and dear to my heart, what we're going to talk about today. And I know it's a challenge for a lot of our kids. So, so I came across your work, and I'm not even sure how I found the original Diane Sawyer piece with, with you and another doctor, um, but it, it was focused on this experiment that you were doing where you had a mom and a little boy in the room. I think he's maybe like three years old, three or four, and you gave instructions to the mom for two minutes. You have got to focus on your device and your device only, and you can't talk to your son at all. And watching it was like, oh my gosh, like what is going on? So why don't you kind of walk us through that? And then we'll kind of dive deeper into the research that you found behind it. Great. Yes, that was, that was a wonderful opportunity to share research, uh, on, you know, in this, in this bigger stage uh, than just publish, publishing the science. Um, this was based, so the Diane Sawyer team ran across this study that I published with my colleagues, uh, Kristen Buss and Crowley Perez-Edgar at Penn State. And what we had done is we had gotten really interested in how we use devices in our relationships. And there are these ideas of technoference and fubbing, how, how you know, mobile devices especially can get in the way of an interaction in the moment. And we started to think about, you know, and ourselves as parents, how we use phones when we're you know, talking with our kids and our family. And we realized, wow, this, these screens are coming between us and they're coming um, between us in the middle of interactions. And they're, they're, they're also disrupting our ability to make eye contact. Uh, with uh, our kids and our loved ones. And as developmental and clinical psychologists, that got us thinking because it's not that, you know, you can't ever interrupt a conversation or an interaction with a kid. Um, but um, when you constantly are disrupting connection, social connection, and not really repairing it, we know that over time that can start to actually uh, disrupt the, 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 uh, the emotional bonds and communication in a parent-child relationship. And there's this very... Um, classic experiment in the developmental psychology literature called the still face. And many people have seen this because it's really, it's a beautiful experiment in the sense of it being so elegant. There are YouTube videos of this, you can see it. And what happened is that um, parents, mostly mothers in the beginning, but fathers too, were brought into a lab and they were asked to interact with mostly their infants who were maybe in a little seat uh, and they were interacting face-to-face -face, as we do with infants. We look at them, we laugh, we, we talk, we have these early conversations, even though there are no words, this give and take between young children and parents. Um, and so they'd have the parents interacting. And we know that these early conversations are how kids learn about give and take. They learn, oh, when my mom laughs, I laugh. And then, and then I'll do something funny and we'll react. And we start to learn that reciprocity very early on. So you feed off of each other's like facial expressions? Yes, this is a key aspect of child development that we know is a part of healthy child development. And they developed this experiment. Well, I'll, I'll go on to describe what happened. So you, you interact for just a couple minutes with your infant, parent and infant face-to-face -face normally. Then the parent is instructed, okay, stop everything and just hold your face still and don't react to anything your baby does. So when the baby smiles and laughs, the parent just holds their face still, non-reactive. The baby goes, uh, 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 parent does nothing. And this goes on for just about a minute or so. But what is so surprising about that minute is that it's very difficult and painful for, for the child because they've already learned 
that these expectations that a parent, a caregiver will respond in this connected, synchronized way. So when you disrupt that, they get upset. And then of course, we, they don't put babies through this too long. That would be way too cruel even for <laughs> evil scientists. Um, so then they repay, you know, and then they, okay, you can stop now and just react as you normally do, uh, would. And the parents repair the interaction. So now they, they laugh again and they coo and they tickle the belly, et cetera. Um, and what you see, so in this experiment called the still face, you can track um, children's levels of distress during the still face. You can track that it takes a little while for children to recover from the still face and start to interact normally and reciprocally with a parent again. And what you see is that in um, parent-child dyads and in, in, in these groups that actually have maybe a history of, of poor attachment or have some other, or have a history of maybe the parent struggles with depression, it's harder, they've had less practice in repairing these kinds of disconnections. And so people have really looked at this um, little experiment as a way to examine and understand how, uh, how long-term interruptions in parent-child interactions might have a more long-term impact and, and actually start to reflect some, what could be problems in the parent-child relationship. So my colleagues and I looked, knew about this classic experiment, of course, and we thought, hey, when we use devices in front of our kids over and over and over again, are we just doing one big giant still face? Can we and have an, and it's not a perfect analogy, but what we're doing is in the moment by putting this device in front of our face, it's as if we've stopped responding. We're withdrawing ourselves from that interaction, and for a moment at least, um, we're we're not we're not giving them that reciprocity they crave. Again, we don't think that doing that once in a while is bad, but what if we do it over and over? So, what the in the Diane Sawyer piece, what they did is they recreated that experience between parent and child. So that we could see on camera what it's like for a child um, when a parent sort of uh, interrupts the interaction uh, with the phone. Uh, we also were able to see how well different kids in the, in, the, in the actual research project, not the Diane Sawyer piece, but when we gathered data using this uh, experiment uh, with the devices instead of a traditional still face, we were able to see, oh, you know, does this, can we actually track that kids do have a hard time reconnecting after parents Get, have the device in between them? Is there a delay in being able to re-engage in pre-play time and, and, and with a nice emotional flow? And we did find there was a delay. We also found that the more that parents said that they used phones and devices in front of family members, the harder it was for kids to recover after the still face and re-engage in sort of an emotionally positive way. So we weren't trying to say that all phone use with your kids is bad. But what we did detect with, with the, you know, based on the data is that there, that it does cause a disruption when you shove a phone in the middle of an interaction, which is what your grandma could have told you, of course. But it also starts to look like this still face paradigm that we know is an analog to other kinds of larger parent-child disruptions, like what happens when parents are depressed and can't engage with their kids over long periods of time. And we know it's hard to repair it. So this again, wasn't to demonize phone use, but to kind of make us all wake up and look for a moment and think, huh, maybe there's a cost. And maybe there's, there are choices we can make knowing that it's meaningful to put a phone in the middle of our time with our kids. Does, it, does your research show any detail on it's worse as kids get older so my triplets are going to be 11 soon. My youngest Mackenzie is, is nine. Does it, does it matter what age they are? If, if they're like toddler, infant, you know, uh, you know, 
early, I, I don't even know what you might I call the group of ages of my kids, you know, teenagers. Yeah. Does it, yeah. does it matter? Does, what do you find by age groups? So we don't know. We haven't done that, those studies, but from a developmental perspective, we really think of this early childhood period, say infants and toddlers and preschoolers. This is the time where that reciprocity, that eye contact uh, really uh, that between parent and child is developmentally very important. It's how a young child learns to be a self with others. They know that, oh, I do this and I'm reacted to. I, I, you know, they start to have this sense of autonomy and being a social partner with someone else. They learn a lot about emotion in these early face-to-face exchanges. They learn, you know, you, you as a parent, every parent knows um, kids can read that sparkle in a parent's eye. You know, when we're, yes. when we're, you know, you know, that, that excitement, that love, that so much is conveyed in the human eye and the human eye has evolved to be this really, it really is the window to the soul in the sense that we have evolved to read each other's um, eye expressions, uh, to follow each other's eye gaze. So when a parent, you know, looks over to something and is alarmed, uh, and, uh, even a, an infant will know that something is happening and they'll orient to that. Other animals don't necessarily do that quite as effectively. Um, so, so there's, oh, and there's my dog. I was, I was actually just um, thinking about a dog because dogs who co-evolved with, who evolved in human communities are actually really good at following eye gaze. And anyone who's a dog person knows that they'll give you that look and they'll look for your eyes to tell you, I want food now, or there's something going on. So, um, eye gaze is extremely important, uh, to early childhood relationships, to dog human relationships. So, you know, so I think it is perhaps a little more important in the early years in that sense, in answer to your question. But I think, you know, we did a study also with adults where they were working on a problem solving task together. And we did a fubbing study in which we interrupted the problem solving with one of the the, uh, adults who was actually a research assistant pretending to get a call in the middle of problem solving and getting on their device and texting. And we found that that really emotionally disrupted the experience of the other person. It disrupted problem solving. It made them feel more anxious. So even we adults are very sensitive to the phone getting in the way of our social connection with each other. Isn't there, isn't there a lot of research behind, I just thinking from a productivity standpoint, like when you're, when you're working on something and you get distracted, whether it's your phone ringing or like you check an email real quick, it's, it takes time to shift back and center back on the task that you are actually working on, right? There's definitely a cost, cognitive, time-wise. And so, and the way that technology is set up, that it's mobile, we do these, we're constantly getting dings and rings, we're constantly being interrupted. So again, it doesn't have to be all bad, but we have to be aware as digital citizens about what kinds of choices to make. So again, I don't wanna demonize parents who sometimes get on their phones in front of their kids. I do the same, but it's about being mindful about, well, what am I interrupting? When can I put the phone away? When can I really have this, you know, really um, kind of prioritize and honor this human interaction we're having um, where face-to-face is the most powerful way to do it in some cases. And I think you, you made a good, good point there and you've made it twice now. And I know that you, you made it several times in the Diane Sawyer piece, which we'll link to your, your site with all your work in, in that video as well, is that what, when you're giving talks, you're not demonizing parents, 
I mean, no. <laughs> and so I just want to make that very clear for the audience too. And, and me having you on, I, I want to get to the bottom of some of these things on, because I see it as a way to help have a, have a better relationship with my kids and be a better parent and be, and have a, a better, be a better digital citizen, if you will, because that's one of my really main concerns right now, especially with my, my two boys is that their world revolves around um, their devices and in, in the games that they play. And it's really hard to interact with them um, because I don't necessarily know a lot about the games that they're, they're playing. And that sounds horrible, but it, it, it's the truth. Um, but I know like when they want to tell me something about their game, then that's when I need to try to stop what I'm doing and paying attention to them because in their world, in their mind, that's a really big deal. That's such a great point, Paul. And um, I think that we have, it's so hard being a parent navigating the digital age right now. And we have so many messages thrown at us that, you know, it's sort of the digital, digital is poison, but it's totally our fault if we don't manage it perfectly. And it's all good or all bad. And so all the headlines are driving parents to really often feel like it has to be all or none. And I truly believe that if we can feel a little empowered as parents to kind of have open conversations with our kids, um, to not believe that all screen time is bad because it, it, it isn't. Um, and there, you know, and I'd love that we can talk more about like what does count as good and bad screen time and how can we start to decide that for our own families. But, but you're right, if we just pretend that the solution is to get kids off screens, we're not having those opportunities that you just man- mentioned to really connect with our kids over the parts that are important to them. And when we start to understand what's important to them, what they're getting from, from you know, time on games or time on screens, then we can figure out what are the healthiest parts of that and give them those opportunities and then weed out the parts that aren't so healthy, aren't so fulfilling to them. And we can help them make those decisions too. You know, part of the, the challenge about being a parent at, at my age, so I'm 45 right now, is that obviously every generation is different. So how I grew up and played, and I'm, and I grew up in the country, so it's really different than growing up in a metro area of Detroit where we live today, where there's a lot more opportunities to to do things. Um, but where I wanted to go with that is I, I'm trying very hard to take a step back and realize that my the way that my boys play with their friends on games, whether it's, uh, I don't know, Fortnite's the right one. Roblox is really big right now. And it's a way, it's a different way of socializing with their friends that I, we didn't have the technology like that back then. Would I have been the same way? Probably I would have, you know, had something that gave me a lot of enjoyment rather than, you know, telling my kids to go outside and play. This is, I think it's just different. And trying to understand those differences, I think, is really key. And there's days that I do and days that I, I, I lose my blank. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's, this, it's this whole balancing act. And I think that's the struggle for most parents is how do you balance it? And I know in our, one of our previous conversations, you talked about, you know, you're absolutely right. The, the media headlines portrayed as like all or nothing, which is not good. 
Um, but there's this balance to be had and having conversations with our kids and asking them, what do you think is, is good? I mean, non-technology aside, I was just having this conversation with my foursome last night about <laughs> candy from tr- from Halloween. I'm like, Oh boy, I'm, I'm right there with you. Paul. <laughs> so I was like, I, I've told all four. I'm like, how uh, do you think this is, this is a healthy, do you think that this is a healthy amount of candy to eat? I, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because we treat screens like they're magic. Like all of our parenting skills and knowledge are all of a sudden out the window because now it's about screens and it's so scary and we don't, you know, and there, and there are all these levers being pulled behind the scenes that control us and manipulate us, which, you know, I'm not going to completely argue with that, but I think we have to step back and say, okay, wait a second. We can actually think about screen time. Like we do food, like we do healthy eating. That's one really helpful analogy that I think empowers parents. So we know junk food when we see it, we know healthy food. And I think the same goes for screen time. So when we think about, and we talk to our kids about what are you getting out of your time on the screen? We can ask ourselves, okay, what are the parts of their screen time that are about, uh, you know, quality social connection, not just screaming at each other, shoot them, shoot them, shoot them, but you know, more quality. And that's okay too sometimes, but you know, quality social connection. Um, what allows a, a kid and ourselves, go, same goes for ourselves, by the way, what allows a kid to be a more active user, so creating something, being in a more of a creator mode, you know, on Roblox, there's a lot of creativity on um, Minecraft, which my son um, likes on and off, although he changes sometimes. Um, there's a lot of creativity. You know, what are the choices that uh, the, the games or the things they do that allow them to be more creative versus just passive consumers? And there's a lot of good research out there, actually. Some of the, I think that the, the, one of the strongest takeaways in terms of what research actually shows that kids who are not, don't seem to be negatively affected by social media or technology are the ones who are more actively using it, who are creating something, who are seeking out information rather than the ones that are passively just watching something or scrolling through their friends' feeds and feeling like social comparison, like their lives are much worse than other people's lives. And so the more active, the more healthy, the more engaged uh, a person's technology use, it tends to be perhaps less harmful and maybe even in many cases, helpful and creative. So that's that's definitely one thing that a parent can think about. And the other second thing um, that, I, that is a guide for myself and really also comes from the research is that we can start thinking about screen time as an opportunity cost. That's where the balance that you mentioned comes in. So if the screens are keeping my kid, maybe, you know, I live in New York City, so I also can't just open the door and let them run outside like I did when I was growing up in the suburbs, but what is screen time keeping them from doing in terms of other face-to-face or enriching activities? Like, you know, is my son playing the piano less? Is my daughter dancing less or doing less drawing? Is my you know, are they not doing as many sports because of it? So if you can see that and find the balance and let your kids start to help you articulate the balance that they want, then that's a great conversation. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really excellent point. And I've really tried to focus on this the last year is giving, putting, putting the onus, I guess, for lack of a better way to put this, putting the onus back in my, in the, in my kids' court with, help having them help decide the rules and regulations, if you will, and you know, what, what they should be working on. And 
it's a, it's a struggle. Like, like most things, when it comes to parenting, <laughs> it's a struggle and you have your good days and the bad days. It, but I'm, I, I think that's a really great point that I think goes lost on parents is try to involve kids as much as possible in the decision-making process so that they feel ownership. Because we know from research in other fields that when people feel that they have autonomy and control over their situation, you know, it's, it's a much better, it's a much better situation. Right. And there are good and bad ways to do that. Probably. I mean, it's, it's individual for each family, but you know, one way to do it is to put constraints around the kid's choice, right? So to say, okay, we know that you have to do homework before any screen time. Um, and then uh, you can start with an hour if you finish all your homework and then we can kind of, you know, and, and that's what we're going to do today as a family. And there's no screen time during uh, dinner time because that's our time together. So what do you wanna do during that hour? Let's have a conversation. What's most important to you? So I think we structure, we teach kids healthy habits that we ourselves need to follow a bit. We can't, we can't be the worst role model and then expect our kids. So you know, fortunately or unfortunately, we all as a family need to sort of have an agreement. And, um, but then to have them be able to make choices within that, I think is exactly what you're saying. It's, um, it gives them a sense of autonomy and they start to internalize how to make good choices on their own because eventually they're going to need to do that. And that's one of the, I, I, that's another great point that you, that you brought up is modeling healthy habits and full disclosure. I'm probably like one of the worst parents at this. I fully admit it. And, and Teresa, my wife tells me all the time, is like, you need to rethink how you model things. And she's, she's right. And the kids are right too, because I seem to be, I, I work a lot. I, which I do because I love what I do. I love working with families, both on their on their financial plans, but also just as important on their life plans, which is why this podcast came to be. Um, but I read a lot. I do a lot of research. And where is that reading and researching taking place? Like I'm holding up my my iPad or my you know phone, even though people can't see it, but it's on those devices. And it's not like, Years ago, when we didn't have these, like I would be paper, reading paper, I'd be reading, you know, physical books, but now I'm not. So, so why is that bad? Like, how is that? Is that dis, is that causing a disruption, or is that um, is it in the middle of something you're doing as a family, or why is why is that bad? I I don't I think that they see dad on a device a lot, which which probably which I I construed to to think. Okay, well, if I see dad on his device a lot, then why can't I be on my device just as much? Mm-hmm. So just seeing you on it, do they know that you're working, or are they question, or are they like, oh, dad, you're really just checking your Twitter feed, or like, what did they? <laughs> yeah, I've I've tried to explain to them more and more, like, so when when I'm doing reading at night and I've got my iPad, like mm-hmm. sometimes, like last night, I would physically go into the room and read with them. So even though I've got my, my iPad, they can see that I'm reading a research report or a book yeah. or whatever it may be. Yeah, it's so tricky. I mean, the late, latest stats show that we spend half of our lifetimes on screens, like over half by some estimates. Yeah. And so when you start to count that, and that's not just, you know, our mobile phones, but you know, doing work on computer screens and TV and et cetera. So if you think when you get as old as you and I are, Paul, you know, this, we're talking, we're starting to dog decade, you know, we're starting. And by the end of our lives, uh, God willing, be a long life. Uh, um, it's decades. So, so, you know, 
you know, when I think when when I'm faced with a situation like that, and I of course have been too, I find that my kids are more upset if they feel like I'm on a screen in the middle of something we're all doing together. And yeah. so sometimes what I do is I just leave and I say, guys, I'm so sorry. I just have to read this thing or deal with this thing. I'll be back in 15 minutes. And then I come back screen free. And it's actually more quality time than if I'm just there and they feel like I'm, I've disappeared into my screen. Yeah. So I, I don't know if that works, but that's one thing to think about. No, no, I, I completely agree with you because I'm probably 50-50 on that, meaning half the time. I can do that. And then the other half of the time, I just keep trying to plow through. But I notice a big difference when I say, look, guys, I need five, 10 minutes to go and finish this up and then I'll be back. Um, but to your point, like I, we, Teresa and I try to have some constraints around, you know, when they can be on and off and like when we're doing things as a family. And that's, that's one of the things that are kind of gumming us up right now is that for a few of our kids, they, they want to be on those devices, you know, all the time and would rather forego going outside to play with their kid, with, with other kids or with doing something as a family. Now we, we, we have been blessed and fortunate <laughs> to have such a big and unique family with these triplets plus one. So trying to get four kids all around the same age to agree on what oh to do gosh. Yeah, is good luck. Good nearly luck. impossible. So <laughs> that in itself is a different topic. Um, but I, I've, to your point, I've tried to grow and develop, you know, as a parent in, in my usage, you know, with screens as well to try to model healthy behaviors and to try to talk to them about it. Like I gave the example with, with the candy. Um, one one question I want to kind of pivot to, which is techie, but I'm really interested in this. And it's because you hear people talk about, well, the research says this. You run a lab. What what how do you get your research? Like, how do you get people to be a part of these studies and these research projects that you do? I know this is like getting like really like into the, into the weeds, but it's something I think that I think, and I think this has been heightened with COVID because people will pull an article offline and well, this researcher says this, and then they'll pull another article. This researcher says that, where does all this research come from, Tracy? <laughs> well, we, we get participants by hook and crook. So, and, but, but honestly, it really depends on the kind of research one's doing. So, you know, during COVID, of course, a lot of us shifted to online uh, research where we could. And then, you know, you can do everything from advertising on, you know, and, you know, there's social media advertising that's always an option. Um, there's, um, you know, uh, Craigslist. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, so there's that sort, you know, there's been that route. But a lot of the work I do is, cl is clinical work. So, for example, we do a lot of research with my um, stress and anxiety reduction app, Personal Zen, um, which we've been conducting research on for a decade, which is this gamified approach to retraining. It's a kind of a, a neurocognitive retraining technique that helps people who are feeling stressed and anxious to, to kind of dampen some of the cognitive habits we have. Is that for adults and kids? Yes. Yes. Okay, we'll be so, we'll be sure to link that in our show notes. <laughs> Thank you. That'd be great. Um, and and so what we've done with this, but it's but it's meant to be a very brief intervention. So it gets people on and off screens. 
it's easy for everyone to use. And we're, we um, finished up a study recently in collaboration um, with NYU Langone um, with my amazing collaborator there, Lee Charvet, who works with MS patients and chronic pain patients. And there, of course, this was, you know, we were in the clinic and, uh, and, and, the, and personal Zen was being offered uh, to them to manage stress and anxiety during the course of their chronic illness. And the thing with chronic illness and, and with pain and, you know, so much of the medical care, and this is where, you know, my sense of mission really comes in too. So much of medical care goes to managing physical symptoms and therefore the emotional aspects of what it means to have a chronic condition, to be in pain, to, to cope with this over many, many years and decades is ignored. Uh, and they're often even called the silent symptoms of stress and anxiety and, and distress. Um, so there's no real treatment for that. So, so we were really interested in offering this digital intervention that was easy to use, brief, and has shown to be effective um, with, this, you know, with this group. And so I really love to work in, in hospital settings and, and in clinics as well to really um, to do that kind of research. We do mindfulness research as well, and we recruited fully online for that. So we had this mindfulness study that we conducted recently showed, showing that you can gain uh, from mindfulness with just a brief online uh, session. Um, and we do research with teen anxiety. And um, we also have a study right now with my wonderful colleague, Regina Miranda at Hunter College, doing a research study on teen risk for suicide. And there we're recruiting from hospital settings and clinical settings as well. Um, but sometimes like 100 students, just, you know, students participate in some of our research as well. That's not clinical. So every which way, I'm sorry, Paul, that was probably not a very helpful answer, but no, it was, but when you say the research says, and this is where as a scientist, it becomes very key for us to communicate with the public, to communicate with the media very clearly. One single study doesn't prove anything. What you do when you do a study is you fail to prove, you know, you fail to support the null hypothesis, which is that nothing is significant. <laughs> so all you really do is fail to support the negative, which means scientists need to be very careful about what we say. Um, and we also need to replicate. And we also need to make sure people don't think that correlational links are causal. And that's really where the impact of, and maybe this will be a separate conversation, but we look at the impact of social media on say teen anxiety and depression or, you know, and we think, oh, there might be, there seems there could be a correlation here. So therefore social media is causing the anxiety. Maybe not. And maybe if we assume it does, we're missing the opportunity to find other kinds of solutions. Like when you're anxious, you tend to use social media in these ways and we can intervene with kids before they get into those patterns. For well, if the, if the audience doesn't know this yet, uh... Tracy's going to be back on the show sometime again early in 2022 because as I was talking, you know, as we were talking with each other, trying to, to nail down like the topic we wanted to cover, as I was doing more research and reading more of your work, that's when I found out about the teen depression project that you were working on in social media, which is in the headlines right now, it's just a hot ball of fire, I guess, yeah. for lack of a better yeah. term. So yeah. that's definitely the, the, you know, topic that we're, we will want to touch on or talk about when we have you back on, um, early in 22, because, you know, having, you know, young kids, that's a, a very important issue and working with the, the families that I do that have kids that span, you know, the ranges from grade school to elementary to middle school, to college, it's something that, you know, we're all talking about as parents and it's, it's very important. So, 
um, I'm glad that you brought that up, but that'll, that'll be our next, uh, that'll be our next conversation. So I want to, as, as we kind of wrap up our conversation, cause I know I only have you for a finite period of time. Can we come back to the, the, the book that you're writing about anxiety and, and we may not be able to get all this in right now. So again, we'll cover this when we have you back on, but, but I want to talk to you about that in particular, because Parent, I'll just use parenting, for example. Parenting was already hard enough before COVID, and now it feels like it's even yeah. harder. But a lot of people are going, and no one knows what to describe it, except this: people are going through this funk where high levels of, of anxiety, I don't know if it's not, it's because we've gone that stretch of time where we weren't being involved or socially with people. I don't know what it is, but a lot of people seem to be very, anxious and concerned right now. Yeah. I mean, this has been, I think for most of us, one of the most anxiety provoking times of our lives because anxiety is all about uncertainty, right? And this pandemic is a pandemic of uncertainty of nothing else. Um, of, of course, as well as the medical uh, pandemic. So yeah, no, thank you for mentioning the book. It's called um, Future Tense. Um, now get that, and here's the subtitle, get ready for it why anxiety is good for you, even though it feels bad. And I, I think that um, this is exactly the, the book we need right now, in my opinion. It's why I was so grateful that I've had the opportunity to write this book at this moment when anxiety is such a crisis, because anxiety is a crisis. All of us parents, myself included, are worried about our kids' experiences of anxiety and stress and depression. But one thing that I think um, that we psychologists and mental health professionals have really gotten wrong and have really um, mistakenly um, uh, uh, created is this idea that all anxiety, all feelings of depression or sadness, all difficult emotions um, are dangerous or bad, that, that it's a sign that you failed to be happy, right? Um, that, and we have to, so that this book is really focusing in on the anxiety part of that story about how we've lost this ability to use anxiety as the advantage it actually evolved to be because we've come to see it as something to immediately eradicate and be frightened of, especially seeing it in our kids because we forget that it's not always a disorder. Um, it's actually an emotion that we did evolve to have that energizes us to be persistent to be determined, uh, to be creative and productive and to protect us. Anxiety is actually this, this uncertainty. It's a feeling we get when we're facing an uncertain future. That's why I've called the book Future Tense. Um, and the uncertain future, does not, it doesn't mean that it's all bad. It means that something bad could happen, but something good could happen too. And anxiety is the emotion that energizes us to make the good happen, to make our hopes into reality. And that's something we don't understand about anxiety most of the time. And I think it keeps us from leveraging anxiety to help us be more determined and persistent and all those good things that evolved to be, and instead try to suppress it and eradicate it, which is really a recipe for making anxiety start to spiral out of control. So the goal of my book is not to poo-poo anxiety disorders. It's really not to underestimate the suffering that anxiety can cause because it stinks. It's a very painful emotion. But I want to rescue our view of anxiety to consider people to have a new mindset about anxiety so we can use it as an ally and an advantage instead of treating it always like an enemy. 
So I could keep, I could talk, I could keep talking to you about this for like hours. Um, but let, let me come to my closing question that I ask all my guests, which is what is the best thing, Tracy, about being a parent? Oh my goodness. I, the thing I think I love the most about being a parent is to, um, and my kids are 10 and 13 now. So it's really an exciting time as they become these real, I mean, they already are these incredible human beings, um, but to see where their passions lie um, and to really um, be able to explore what excites them and to support that. And when, when, when my husband and I can see what our kids are passionate about and try to support it, it just makes us more alive and I think more grateful for every day. So I, I, that's what I think I enjoy most um, uh, about being a parent. And also they tell you like it, they tell you it like it is. <laughs> so you can also gain a little humility along the way. Well, I, I loved that question because over the last year, the diversity of the answers has just been, you know, off the chart. So I think that is a terrific way to close up this first conversation that we're going to have. And I'm definitely going to look forward to our next one. Uh, you, Paul. Are you sure? Are you sure? I mean, it's, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure. A lot here. <laughs> no, no. And I'm sure we're going to get some great feedback from our audience as well. And I'll put out some, some notes about getting questions from, from the audience as well to ask you on, you know, along the terms of, so we're going we're gonna to pivot to social media and talk about, you know, anxiety some more in detail as well. But Tracy, I can't thank you enough for being on, on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. Well, thank you so much, Paul. What a pleasure. I'm grateful you invited me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.